0: 2 Kings chapter 8, I like like these chapters, things that we discover. I hope uh, you do too. Far-Reaching Ministry is the title for this evening's message. And a reminder, I think it's the goal of the speaker when they give title to their session, that it speaks, it's part of the teaching, it means something. This chapter we have another famine, lepers, or a leper. We have a king, a sick king, and his murderer. Uh, And uh, incidentally, the leper is a defrocked leper. He was once in ministry, he was put out. And then we have the devil's in law. So we'll see what we get. The far-reaching ministry is called that because Elijah's miracles... Almost a decade decade later, one of them is, is still doing work for the Lord. And uh, so is, again, the servant that he had to dismiss. He even goes into Damascus and does work for the Lord. So let's look at verse 1. Then Elijah spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for Yahweh has called for a famine. Furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. Well, the King James, the new King James, well, we'll get to that in a few verses down. But in most translations, verse 1 starts off, then Elijah. In the Hebrew, uh, that is, it's not there. It does not start off then. It just starts off, Elijah. The idea being now Elijah, and that is kind of important because it—if um, you leave, put the insert the then then Elijah, then you are connecting it with the previous events, and and that's not what is happening here. And it's very difficult. The translators have just an enormous task, and they don't always give us the ideal. Uh, Translation or presentation it doesn't corrupt anything. There's no truth lost. It just dig a little bit. It's, it's there. But uh, this, what what is going on here with this siege, is not connected to the episode that we just completed in chapters six and seven. So that um, now that we got that clear. God told Elijah about this other famine, this seven-year famine that's coming. The the famine before this was caused by the Syrian army besieging the city of Samaria. Uh, This one is not the same thing. And he goes to the widow and he alerts her. God told me there's a famine coming and I'm telling you there's a famine coming and you need to take evasive actions to avoid this famine. And it is not, not uncommon in the Old Testament for people to migrate away from where the famine is. We read it in Genesis uh, at least twice. We get it in the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth starts off with that family uh, getting away from the famine. There are different levels of famine. Uh, the siege, of course, is you know, at the, towards the end of a siege. You're going to have anything. It doesn't matter what the land is doing. And here she is. She had made life easier for the prophet. And he is making life easier for her. I'll come back to to that in a moment. The fact that her husband is not mentioned suggests that she is now a widow. Looking back in chapter 4, in verse 14, we read, So he said, What then is is to be done for her. When the prophet wanted to bless this woman for blessing him, and Gehazi answered, actually she has no son and her husband is old. So uh, the mention of the husband being old sets up the events in this section concerning her. It magnifies her plight. We get to see that it's bigger than what we may have thought. The fact that When she goes to reclaim her land at the gate, her husband is not with her. He could have been ill, but he's he's likely, she's likely a widow now. And this, this woman is the recipient of special care from God through the prophet. She received the child through miraculous circumstances. She received the child back when he died. She is receiving direction to avoid the famine that is coming, the approaching famine. And she will receive her land back when she returns with proceeds. She's going to get a land back that's confiscated and a check. Grace, because of her grace to serve God by caring for her prophet. That if you had to track it, if you said, well, where... What did this woman do to get so much attention from the prophet Elijah? Well, it's really God, but the prophet is the vessel. And it was her grace. Mark chapter 9, verse 41, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. God pays attention to this kind of grace. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 6, speaking of the Christ, John writes, and of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. And that's what was happening here. She showed the prophet grace, and she is receiving grace. But there's still this thing called the curse upon the earth. And that means there are struggles, there are fears, there are setbacks, heartbreaks, disappointments. and still victory in the midst of all of it. All of it. In verse 2, So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. So she heads to the west coast of Israel. and Or at least she goes west at the very least, but likely all the way to the coast. She is believing the prophet without fussing. She's not giving him a hard time. Seven years is a long time to be away from home. But it's worse. It would be a harder seven years to remain where food was not Readily available, and so uh, she she follows the directions, which is applaudable. Again, I mentioned there were degrees of famine, uh, ranging from food being scarce to being to food being completely absent, gone because of circumstances such as a siege. And this this famine is not as severe as the one in chapter six. Uh, We're informed later that her land did produce some food and thus the proceeds that she will be reimbursed for. Also, this famine is not widespread or else going west to the to the land of the Philistines uh, would not have given her any relief. So this is a judgment. And it is, uh, again, not widespread, but local to the northern kingdom. Possibly some other places, but we know it's the Northern Kingdom. And, and what, would, what would determine how severe a famine is? Well, there's a couple of many factors. It could have been locusts, could have been weather, just you know no rain with where this area was. Vermin, uh, insect infestation, plant disease. There, there are other factors that could keep a famine local to an area. Uh, they could certainly import food, but that would be a struggle, too, without interstate. I won't be grateful for <laughs> interstates. Anyway, <clears throat> here in verse 2, uh, she, returned, uh, she returns from the land of the Philistines. That's where she went. Uh, she may have gone to other places uh, initially, but now she's back. And she makes an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. That's what it tells, her, tells us here in verse 3. Well, we've heard of people with sticky fingers. These are sticky farmers. They have laid hold of her land. It could be the government. We'll, we'll get to that. Elisha didn't warn her about this, did he? He said, a famine is coming. It's going to be seven years. You need to get out of here. But he doesn't tell her, when you come back, someone's going to, be to, going to take over your home and, and your, your land. Well, maybe God didn't show him. That's very likely. I don't think he suppressed that information at all. He gave her the initial prophecy, and she acted on it. But God's not out of the picture at all. And here, we see her making this direct appeal to the king. Absent of a third party, there's no one to object, in other words. There's there's not a counter- party to say, well, you left the land and the law says it's just her and the king. And then that part suggests that the governments may have seized her land. Verse 4, Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. So in verse 3, we're told that she returned to the land and she's going to the gate where the king's business was conducted, the courthouse, you could say, She's going there. But but then the writer gives us a little information of what, what happens leading up to her speaking to the king. That's what verse 4 is telling us what's going on. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Well, Gehazi, the deposed servant of the great prophet, he's still being used by God on behalf of others. Elisha, in his past ministry, uh, is still present through his former servant. This is a far reach of ministry that I, I was, I was well, the title. Yes, as a leper, he was unapproachable. But there was no sin in talking to him. You could still dialogue with him. He just had to keep his, his social distance. Uh, but he could certainly be close to the king and close enough to, to talk with him. So, I bring this up because quite a few commentators really struggle. These are good commentators, too. They struggle with the story because of his leprosy. Well, he couldn't have been with the, you know, he had the leprosy. It would have been this. It would have been that. And, and they can't. They think this upsets the story. Well, maybe he, this was before he was smitten with Naaman's uh, leprosy. I think they overlooked the fact that he can still function. It's a simple solution, as as did Naaman. Naaman was a general as a a leper in the Syrian army, probably general over all the Syrian army, and yet he still functioned. Gehazi could also. So I don't think there's any problem uh, with the uh, chronology that he is a leper at this point, and yet he is still useful. He's useful to the king, and he's useful to the king of kings. I think this is encouraging. This is very encouraging. You may have failed in ministry, labeled a leper, and God can still use you. Do you tell me if that's not grace? Where else are you going to find that kind of love? Because a lot of times, you know, churches shoot their wounded. Uh, They don't use them again. That's not the case here. I I, I like Gehazi. I, I don't like the fact that he, you know, God had to make an example out of him because his crime was severe. He put a big stain on the ministry of Elisha. And if Elisha did not deal with that, that stain would have remained there. Anyway, he's not quarantined. There are rules, and they would have followed them, and he's functioning. And he says, the king says, tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. we get in a lot already. We're getting the fact that the prophet blesses her because she's so gracious, but he leaves out an important part. You're going to come back, there's going to be a lot of anxiety. You're going to have to go to court and get this straight. And then we get this fact that God is still using the prophet, Gehazi, uh, the, the servant Gehazi, who was defrocked. And now we're getting this, this king. And there are other things in here, but there's just the highlights of just these four verses. Joram is the king, he's fascinated with the ministry of Elisha. Having witnessed Elijah in action, remember that whole three kings in the desert? I've been bringing it up almost every time since because it's a big part of reality. He knew that Elisha was God's man. He also witnessed Gehazi's leprosy and knew the story. Gehazi was a walking sermon. For the rest of his life, he preached what God did through Elisha. Now, here's the big part of this. People like Jehoram, this king, love hearing about God, what he does, has miracles, until it reaches their conscience. He probably even prided himself as he was amused by the stories and taking credit for having an open mind. Telling his friends, well, you know, I like to hear about the other religions too. I like to hear about the prophet Elijah. But I'm not one of those Bible thumpers. Don't get me wrong. I just have an open mind. I want to expand my knowledge. We see this type today. Again, people like this king, Joram, love hearing about God so long as it doesn't touch their conscience. Where else do we see this in the Bible? We see it in the New Testament. Such was the case with Herod, with John the baptizer. Mark chapter 6, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And then he had his head cut off. So these type of people still exist. They want to be entertained by the scripture. They just don't want to be convicted and therefore they don't get saved and they can do a lot of damage. Jehoram, don't lose sight of this. He was an evil king till his death. His father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel. And how sad it is to be fascinated by what one of God's servants does without becoming one of God's servants. Oh, that's big to me. I, I don't want to stay on it too long. I hope I've made the points that, some of the points at least, that come from just this section. Here's the king sitting at the gate. They're kind of bored. He says to Gehazi, you used to serve Elijah. Tell me a story about him. Because I saw him in the at work in the desert, but I know there's a lot more. Well, I mean, look at you. <laughs> he smote you with Naaman's leprosy. Verse 5. Now it happened while he was telling the king how he, that is Elisha, had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. This is, talk of serendipity, this is amazing. I had a similar thing happen I went on a hospital visit here locally, and I'm coming down the steps into the lobby. Our sister's not here tonight. I told her that I'm going to tell this story as many times as I can from the pool because it's funny. As I'm walking down the stairs, I see her at a distance in the lobby talking with another lady. lady. And she looks up, and she sees me, and she goes, ah! Speak of the devil. (laughs) There's no way to address your pastor. (laughs) Speak of the devil? (laughs) What are you doing? So she was telling the lady about the church and her pastor. And here I come walking down the stairs. I don't think the lady ever turned it. Oh, came to the church. Why should she? Her pastor was called a devil. (laughs) So it's just one of those things. You all probably have such stories of God setting up things that only he could have done as it is here. Gehazi said, let me tell you about the time he raised his boy from the dead because I ran. I put the staff on him and nothing happened. Elijah gets there. This was a battle. Oh, there she is. That's the woman. It was her son. Now, that was at least seven years. It was more than seven. The kid is probably 10, 14 years old at this point. And uh, happening at the city gate where the kings conducted business. business, there were markets there and shops and beggars. A lot of activity here. And so the hand of God has her arrive just at the time Gehazi is telling the story to the king. Gehazi, does he know what he's doing? Does he know that God is using him? I think he's got to reason. He's not a stupid man. We not Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the ancients were idiots because they were not. He's got to reason when he sees this woman blessed by the king because of his story. He's got to say, God used me. In verse 6, And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from... The day that she left the land until now. Well, years ago, her son died. Of course, the prophet brings him back to life. Little did she realize that one day that bitter experience would save the day for them. It's just, she's just being a faithful servant. We have no reason to think that her gracious heart stopped because of hardship. She was no longer gracious, she became bitter. It's not the impression the scripture leaves us with about her. Gehazi, part of this whole thing, God using that bitter experience to restore to her her lost property with a check. Well, um, I, I mean, it's just... Amazing. She didn't see this coming. She's probably on her way to the king's gate worrying. What's the king going to say? Will I get my land back? What happens if I don't? I don't have a husband anymore. I'm on my own. Uh, How am I going to survive if they don't give me my land back? She doesn't know the outcome. Now, the communists, if they heard her, she got her land back from the government or from whoever, they would protest because all land is the government's land, according to communism. The individual is secondary, to the state. The socialists would insist that she share the proceeds and the land and whatever comes out of it with everybody, no matter how lazy and good for nothing they are. What form of government is best? It certainly isn't communism or socialism. The Bible preaches neither one of those. The kingdom of God is the best. That's the best. That's why Jesus said, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not some regime of man, it's the kingdom of God. And we serve. We don't you know, there's this metaverse that everybody talks about, like the you know, the, the internet world. <clears throat> well, that's a man made Tower of Babel. For us, we serve a kingdom. That's another dimension that has something to do with this one. Well, again, verse five, uh, well, verse six now. Well, we did verse 6, didn't we? Verse 7. Well, so that's that part. Where, but verse 7 says, Then Elisha went down to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. Again, with the then. This time, it's the new King James, not other translations, too. And it's misleading, because it it, it looks like it's connecting it, or following right after it. However, the fact that Elijah is going to Damascus may suggest this is at the beginning or sometime at that famine. She went to the the area of the Philistines. Maybe, though we're not told explicitly, maybe the prophet says, well, I'll go into Damascus. Because, you know, why else is he going outside of the promised land? This uh, Syrian ruler might be the same one that besieged Samaria, and of course, you know, the lepers, <laughs> they're desperate. What, what do we have to lose? Let's venture out. I mean, if he kills us, he kills us. Better than dying of starvation. And they get to the camp, and everybody's gone, and they gorge themselves. And uh, you could just see them stuffed, yet still running around with the loot. And then, of course, their conscience comes to life. That was last session. Anyway, uh, the king, when he heard Elijah had come to Damascus into Syria, uh, he knew Elisha was a walking army of God. This was, uh, to him, ministry coming his way. Verse 8, And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire <clears throat> of Yahweh by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Now remember, he's not, a, he's not submitted to God. They believed in the local, you know, our God is the God of Damascus or so Syria. The, the Jewish God is Yahweh. He excels in this area, but our gods you know, do well here. The Greeks took it to another level. You, know, you had the God of war, the God of love, the God of theater, the, the overruling God, you know, the Zeus, and then the Romans just absorbed all of that and changed Zeus to Jupiter. And uh, So this is nothing new, this misconception about a deity, and we're supposed to help. People with the truth from the word, when they will allow us. Uh, so anyway, it wasn't uncommon for someone to consult a prophet. Balak consulted Balaam, and uh, Naaman, of course, came to Israel to be healed by uh, the uh, Elijah. So uh, Elisha. So none of this is um, is consistent with Scripture and human behavior. Elijah's miracles uh, had this effect. It, It caused people to take note of who he was and greatly respect him. And so they regarded him, this king, regards him as a true prophet of Yahweh. It does not mean that he regards him as a true prophet of Yahweh and Baal and all the other gods are false. He believes they're still gods. This was common and the prophets had to deal with this and with the Jewish people Uh, throughout the Bible. They're just constantly trying to get people, God's people, to stop mingling in or leavening the lump. And to this day, you will find Christians trying to justify prohibited practices into Christianity. Uh, Horoscopes. I don't, you know, not too, I haven't come across anyone like this in a long time, but years ago I did. There were were Christians, I I love the Lord, and I can't wait to read my horoscope. <laughs> Are you crazy? Uh, so anyhow, this is not uncommon. Uh, back to this. Um, the, the superstitions that the people held was muddled by the people of God. The other people, the, other, the foreigners, like the Syrian king, it wouldn't have, it probably wouldn't have had this opinion of Yahweh had the Jewish people been faithful. It would have been a black and white kind of a thing. Uh, you either follow Yahweh or you follow false gods. But because the Jewish people were mixing everything up, the the unbelievers just had all sort of weird information. It comes out in many stories in the Bible. Well, it's true today. How many people do you know claim Christ muddled everything up? our are prosperity teachers. Why aren't they giving the winning numbers to Lotto from the pulpit every Sunday? If they, you know, money's so big and God wants everybody rich. But see, they mess it all up. And then you come along with the truth. And that person you're speaking the truth to has got all these misconceptions in their head. And sometimes they don't want to give up those misconceptions because they don't want to be convicted. Other times it's just too much for them. Uh, look at the Roman Catholic Church. Look what they've done. People actually call them Christians. They think the popes a Christian. Well, I think you got to follow the Bible to be a Christian. I don't, you know, you you might take, be aghast with it. I'm not. I wouldn't even call him Pope. So what's your last name? I'll call you Mr. Because I don't respect that. I do not respect what you have done to Christianity, having people use beads to pray to Mary and stuff like that. That's anathema. And someone needs to call you out on it. If I had said this several hundred years ago in Europe, they'd burn me at the stake. Well, anyway... Um, nowadays, i got to get past my hardware. <laughs> I didn't know he was packing. Anyway, all right, that's just a joke. So come, no, oh, a little bit. <laughs> Lord, at what po- Okay, never mind. Coming back to this. It this should get your dander up, because I don't know if you've ever tried to witness to some people who are determined not, uh, to, to be against the Bible because of the Roman Catholic Church. If you're trying to teach, preach to Christ to them, and they're just your enemy because you believe in the Bible. And yet they insist they're Christians. I don't go for it. Anyway, verse 9. So Hazael went to meet... Now, let me pause there. Now, that doesn't mean every person that's a Roman Catholic is... Many, there are Roman Catholics that love the Lord, and I think there are many of them going to be in heaven. As for the leaders, I don't know. Uh, that That's, I want to make that clear. Anyway, uh, so Hazael, verse 9, went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar does something like this, you know, wants to get all of the the uh, magicians and the the holy men together to find out what his dream was and this and that. So again, it's not uncommon. But this, the king said, send him a gift. He gives him 40 camels. Now, looking at the ancient writings and the reliefs, you know, the, 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 the brass hammerings of pictures of these things, we find that there are Kings giving gifts, loads of gifts. But it's, you know, two guys carrying maybe two clusters of grapes. So there's a long procession of gifts, which really don't add up to that much. I mean, it still has some value to it. Sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's not. My point is that, um, you, you know, they could use 50 people to carry a single gift, it says that the 40 camel loads. Well, they weren't packed to the point where they, you know, man, we've, we've got 40 camels to capacity. The idea is likely that uh, each camel had a few gifts, and they had this long procession because uh, they were flam. The kings, the oriental kings were flamboyant that way in showing that, hey, I'm giving a gift. I have all this wealth. You know, it used to be. I don't know if it is still in this country. It hasn't been in one in a while. Banks had a policy of always look, having expensive furniture and well-to-do lobby to give you the appearance that they were, you know, very wealthy. And you, if they were wealthy, then you could be wealthy by investing with them. Um, when I was a kid, all the banks had marble and <laughs> everything. It was like, boy, it's a nice place I could hang out here. Uh, so I, I think some of that showmanship uh, is, is going on here. I, I do not think they sent Elijah. 40 camel loads, fully loaded camels. It'd be like a pickup truck with a few boxes in each one. Uh, Anyway, uh, where am I? Now, if you you insist that, no, there were 40 camel loads, you you would just have some explaining to do. Coming back to verse 9, And he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Well, ben had had to show off it, this deference. Your son, it's, it's, you know, they respected some of the people, respected the religious people. We're not told whether Elijah received the gift. He likely did because it's coming from a king. And to say, no, I don't want your gifts in front of public after you parade these camels through town probably just would not have been the, the better thing to do. Remember Jacob? Jacob sent those in, in procession, these gifts to his brother to appease him. Hopefully he wouldn't get killed by Esau. Well, there's some of that without the intensity happening here. So it's not far-fetched. Anyway, uh, verse 10, And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, Yahweh has shown me that he will really die. Oh, great, a paradox. <laughs> yes and no. Elisha, will I recover from this sickness? Mm, Yes, no. Verse 11. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. (laughs) The man that's ashamed here is the messenger, Hazael, the servant of the king. So Elisha tells him the message to take back. Tell him he's going to survive, but he's not going to live. And he just stares at this guy. And the guy is like, "Stop it! Stop staring at me! What an awkward thing!" I mean, try that in the lobby after. Just stare at the other person, and uh, so that's what's what's happening here. Elijah's not ashamed. Elijah breaks down and starts weeping. That is pretty interesting. Christ wept over Jerusalem because he wanted to reach Jerusalem. The prophet is he saying, you know, we don't know which Ben-Hadad, there's probably a title for the king, like Pharaoh, like Caesar, uh, which, you know, the, the chronology is all over the place in kings. A little detective work going on there. But anyway, evidently the prophet cared. And he's looking at an assassin who is pretending to be the assistant to the king in the time of his sickness. He saw, the prophet saw, a cold-blooded killer in front of him. Verse 12. And Hazael said, Why is my Lord weeping? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you set on fire. you, You will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So the prophet breaks down weeping, really not so much for the for the king, Ben-Hadad, though that may have been some, it uh, was this disappointment that, well, we know what we've got with Ben-Hadad, but when you come to power, we also know what we're going to get, and that is this monster. And Hazael will do these things that the prophet is, is talking about. And you have to say, well, why would God tell the prophet this and, not, and allow it? Because the people were so idolatrous and in apostasy besmirking the name of Yahweh, just messing up everything with, this, with their brand of homemade religion. It was judgment on them. God is saying, I warned you that if you fell away from me, that the enemy would come in and, and just do what enemies do to people. And this, this is it. He itemizes it. This is how warfare was conducted. Nowadays, we'd be saying they're going to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles on you, and wipe out whole villages, and then you'll have famine, and you'll have disease, and you'll have, you know, this this is what the prophet is saying. So again, this gift of knowledge and prophecy, he knows things that only God could tell him, and in addition, he's telling future events that are going to take take place. Truly, there is an assassin right there in front of him. Who is going to deny it? Um, verse 13. So Hazael said, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, Yahweh has shown me that you will become king over Israel. Yeah, by killing his king. That's clearly the implication. So when Hazael says, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? The prophet is saying, yes, you are. (laughs) I I didn't call you a dog. You called yourself a dog. You admit that this is inhuman. Now, that word gross in the New King James is again misleading. I don't, you know, you don't try to pick on the translators. The Old Testament is is, is difficult for them. Uh, But anyway, it's closer to this exceptional thing because gross is sort of our vernacular you know you've, you've so you know if you dye mashed potatoes blue and serve it to somebody they gonna say gross i'm not eating that <laughs> but that's not what that's not what is being said here in the hebrew it is he is saying that i should do such a an exceptional evil that is, is and gross is not inaccurate but just kind of clarified i think Anyway, when the opportunity to take the throne of Syria arises, uh, he will become this dog that he refers to here. He will have motive and he will have opportunity. And that creates the crime. And Elijah answered, Yahweh has shown me that you will become king over Syria. So Elijah sticks to what God has told him. He says, I don't care if you disagree with me. God has shown me. I'm, I'm not debating it with you. I've announced it. Too bad. We need to have more Christian Young, youth that go off to our universities to have this response when they're faced with these atheists and antichrist They need to stand up. Yeah, well, God has shown me. And, I, and look, I'm, I'm, I signed on for biology. I didn't ask for you to give me a religious dissertation on anything. Stick to biology. Tell me about cells. For I call my pastor who's got that hardware. Anyway, <laughs> wouldn't that be funny? You could make cartoons out of this. Anyhow, well, uh, back to this. Um, so this man, either he couldn't see his own evil heart or he was unwilling to look. But even though he's lying or, or, or ignorant, it's going to happen. Point. Talk is cheap in the face of temptation. You know, a lot of us don't sin because we don't get the opportunity to. And th- th- thus we pray, lead us not into temptation deliver us from the evil one because we are up against strong wicked forces in the spiritual realm and we have a sinful nature that provides a port of entry for them uh when it comes to sin the flesh has no customs agents as soon as you bring it all in you think that uh, you know never mind i'm not going to talk about our borders coming back to this um Verse 14, then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what else did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. Well, that's not only a half truth, truth, it's a lie. He doesn't get a chance to recover. Uh, <laughs> Hazael tells his king on behalf of the prophet what was said. He has had a hundred miles to think about this. That's how far from Samaria to uh, Damascus there about, give or take. Um, so, verse 15. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his place. Well, he, you know, he got to thinking about that. You may have evil people in your life. So did, So did the ancients. Never been a shortage of them. Satan has never said, mm, where are we going to find somebody wicked? <laughs> He's just like, can you go to the shelf and bring one over here? If, if Maybe the Lord won't block me from using this evil person. Anyway, Ben Hadad, on his deathbed, well, sick, he was <laughs> became a deathbed, probably too weak from the illness to resist, and he suffocates under the cloth. Um... This would, you know, he couldn't. He, he couldn't get a, you know, crime investigators there, forensics, to to say, hey, this is foul play. He was alive, and, and this is what happened. And then everybody just felt that he just breathed his last. And now the obvious choice for his successor would be Hazael. When Hazael becomes king, he does a lot to make Damascus a beautiful city. And the people loved him. They worshipped him pretty much for over 800 into the days of the apostles. They still held Hazael in high esteem. Did they find out that he murdered or was it just Elisha's word against his? Um, I don't know. But I know that uh, he may have gotten away with it with men, but not with God. Verse 16. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, Having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. Okay, this is, this is it's not, it, nothing, uh, it, it's complicated because of the names, not because of the, the, the material. We have two kings with the same name, one in the north and one in the south, and uh, it just can be a little complicated, but if you, you know, you could sit down and figure it out. So don't uh, kick yourself if you are confused in your reading of this last uh, section in chapter 8, to distinguish between the two, usually, Joram is the king in the north, Israel, which is confusing too because Judah still is Israel, but it's Judah separate from Israel. And Jehoram, who's also named Joram, is king in the south, Judah. And that will get further confusing when you get to verses 24 and 25, but again, there's no no theological loss. So let's try to see if there's anything for us, though, as Christians. Verse 17, he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Well, that is uh, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, verse 18, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Okay, so the king in the south, who is now king, at age 32, is following the kings in the north when it comes to religion. And that's what the writer is pointing out. Just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. So, this shifts now, because most of Kings is about the kings in the northern kingdom. Chronicles is about the southern kings. But the, the northern, the southern kings come into the story as as here. Now Jehoshaphat, of course, was a very good king. He loved the Lord. He was not an idolater, but he had that one problem. We always pointed out he couldn't choose friends wisely. He had this attraction to bad people, and we wonder how Jehoshaphat could have allowed his son Jehoram to marry into such a family as Ahab and Jezebel. I, I mean. Well, Second Chronicles 18, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab. Well, he's probably saying, listen, we'll have a righteous influence. We'll marry into the family. It'll be good for the kingdom. We'll be at peace with each other. We're all Jewish brothers, and, and we'll have a righteous impact on that family. And that, the reverse happened. The evil prevailed. They had the influence, and the harvest was, was wickedness. Again, Jehoshaphat, a good man, prone to keeping bad company and making bad decisions when it came to who he associated with. And as a result, his son delighted in the wickedness of his in-laws. Now, David, of course, is always mentioned. He's mentioned here in verse 19 because he is a standard of righteousness amongst the kings. Ahab, along with Jeroboam, they are the standards of wickedness and evil behavior. And Ahab is described as committing the sins of Jeroboam in that he kept calf worship going on in Yahweh's name, set up two temples in Israel, Jeroboam did. You can worship Yahweh in either one of these temples. You just bat down to this this calf, burn incense to it, make sacrifices to it. Whatever you do to Yahweh in Jerusalem, you can do to these calves. Which, of course, is... a, a Disgusting to God. Then Ahab marries Jezebel, the Phoenician princess, and he injects, in addition to Jeroboam's religion, bow worship. And, of course, these are the ones that had no problems killing children. They, they, they waited for the children to be born, and then they would kill them in the name of their religion. 1 Kings chapter 16 And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took as wife, talking about Ahab, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Well, that's going to be the father-in-law of Jehoshaphat's son. And so, he's going to have the devil for an in-law. And, uh, the the wife that has this great influence over these these wicked men Jehoram and Ahab uh, she's not it's not explicitly stated that it was Jezebel's daughter it is ahab's daughter we presume by Jezebel because of the wickedness the wicked connection but uh, kings had multiple wives and it wouldn't be far-fetched to say well it wasn't Jezebel but that's not how I'm telling the story She's going to get blamed for everything, because she deserves it. Anyway, verse 19. Yet Yahweh would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. This was probably written before Nebuchadnezzar, and it is is certainly not untrue. It's just not the whole story. uh, Of Judah's kings, the most singled out ones for their goodness... King David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah—they uh, all had issues, little issues too, but they were still righteous, righteous, righteous kings. I would add um, Uzziah to that, also called Azariah. He's got leprosy in the end for trying to got too big for his crown, and got crowned with leprosy. We'll get him some other time. Anyway. The the historian here is maintaining the mercy to God. Well, Judah is going to become like the northern kingdom. Ezekiel points this out in graphic detail, not fit for uh, uh, unadult audiences, um, juvenile audiences either. But anyway, back to this. um, Judah will be destroyed in judgment, but not annihilated. That lamp continues on. And, of course, Christ um, brings it to the forefront as no other. And that will spill into the millennial reign. It all is connected in the Revelation and the prophets. Verse 20. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. Verse 21. So, Joram went to Zair and all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night, attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Well, this reads as though Jehoram or Joram of the south goes to fight with Edom who wants to get from under his feudalistic control and they win. They are surrounded, but they fight their way out of it. Verse twenty two, then Edom has been thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. So he, he won the battle, but he lost the war. And he's a wicked man. Then Libna revolts. And so there's this, you know, hey, you know, they found out that Edom revolted, but well, we're going to get rid of this guy also. King jo- Josiah's wife uh she is from Libna, which also revolted. And that always, you know, see what I mean? All the kings, the good kings, there was something about all of them. Why does he have to go outside of Israel to get a wife? Good King Josiah. Well, because someone arranged it for him more than likely, long before he had any say-so, because he comes to the throne and he's still just a lad. Uh, anyhow, uh, that's my defense of Josiah. Um, verse 23, now the rest of the Acts of Joram... And all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So that's, that's the book of Chronicles we have. Which gives us more details about him. And I'm, I'm going to read one in a moment how it ends for him. Verse 24. So Joram rested with his fathers. Not that he was tired. He died. And was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Another no good character. Jehoram was not well-liked by the people. This is still the southern king. I hope I didn't lose you on this. It's fun reading about how he was disliked. <sighs> Second Chronicles chapter 21, um, verses 18, 19, and 20. It's some gory reading, and I felt you'd like that. So, looking at verse 18, uh, speaking of this king... After this, Yahweh struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time, after the end of two years, that his intestines came out because of his sickness. So he died in severe pain, and his people made a burning for him, like the burning of his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. So he has a horrible death, and they make a burning for him because he is a king. But personally, they weren't sorry to see him go. How tragic. See, these are the Bible stories that are real. This is what you want to read to the kid, not the intestines part. But, you know, the part about, here's a king that has all of this opportunity given to him to be a righteous influence. And what he does with it is is just vile. And the result is when he dies, they're all glad to see him go. He's not the only king from Judah that that gets this kind of a send-off. Verse 25 now. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, the king of Judah, began to reign. I can follow that. <laughs> Not that important unless you want to really dig into it. Ahab's son is Jo is Joram. This is a reference point. Ahaziah is the son of the Joram to the south that had just died, that I read about that horrible death he experienced. Jehu is coming next chapter. He's going to kill both these guys. <laughs> At, at Elijah. Elijah's going to send a messenger say, hey, Jehu's going to be king. And, and Jehu, he he starts off well. You like him at first. Well, I mean, from an alpha male perspective. Verse 26. Ahaziah was 22 years old when, did I just read that? No. 22 years old when he became king and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Amri, king of Israel. So Athaliah, she Jezebel was the wicked witch in the northern kingdom. Athaliah will be the wicked witch in the southern kingdom. And likely the daughter of Jezebel. Uh, she, she is just a monster. And we'll, we'll get that in Kings. Chronicles gives us even more. Uh, but her grandfather was Omri. Her father um, uh, Ahab. Anyway, verse 27 and it gets a little confused. Sometimes I get confused with all these same names. I'm talking about you, not the people in the Bible. Verse 27. <laughs> and he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of Yahweh, like the house of Ahab, for he was a son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Yeah, okay, so Jehoram was married to Athaliah, uh, the daughter of Ahab. As Ahaziah, their son. She's the mother of this now king. She was the wife of the king that died with the intestines issue. See, that was a good reference point, me reading that. Now we know who I'm talking about. She was his wife. This is her son, Ahaziah. When Jehu gets rid of him, Ahaziah, he's going to get rid of Jezebel too. He's the one that says, throw her down and, and she gets eaten. So we got... Plenty more gore. Be here next week. We're, we'll get to it. Uh, anyway, the good king's son and his wife were wicked, yielded a wicked harvest. These were devils in law. This connection between the northern and southern kingdom created the devils in law. It's a, you, you have a weekly series out of this. Uh, what is that one? I, I never watched it, but I've heard about it. Wives and billionaires or something like that. Or well, who wants to marry a billionaire? Jezebel. That's a, Am I the only one that's heard of these things? Uh, so anyhow, this is just decadence. It's so unnecessary. You, you would just have greed written all over it. Who wants to marry a millionaire? Everybody's hands <laughs> goes up. Okay. Sorry. Verse 28. Now he went with Joram and the son of Ahab to war against Hazael, king of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. Yeah, he's going to die from this. Verse 29, Then King Joram went back to Jezreel, he's the king in the north. See, they've used the name, they've switched the name around, more confusing. To recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, this is verse 29, when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, became king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. All right, so we'll get that picks up the story for next week. Um, These are just rotten people. So the next time you see who won the election in this country, just remember, it's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes you get a good king, sometimes you get a bad one. Well, let's pray. Our Father... The lessons May we, as in this chapter, for me, Lord, the initial stories were very beneficial and the, the latter stories were tiring, as sin is. Sin just wears us down. Reading about it, dealing with it, and yet you have this kingdom of heaven that awaits us. We used say, I'm going to make it all good. It's going to be worth it. We pray that you get us all home safely this evening and we pray for our campers, the children, the counselors, the pastors, your protection upon them. May they all draw closer to you. May there be much lasting fruit from this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.